though we often, particularly if we're paying attention, though we often experience in our own mind uh, variations of stress, anxiety, dis-ease as more of a general term for an unbalanced or dysregulated mind. Despite that we, in, in any other variety of difficult mind states, though we often experience our mind in this way, what I want to emphasize tonight, and I alluded a little bit to this in the practice, uh, is that the mind is naturally prone to wellness. There's an inherent well-being to the mind. Yes, your mind too. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, I always feel like I need to be a little bit cautious with, with, with these kinds of teachings. Uh, it's, to me, it's a radical teaching because suffering is so real uh, for so many of us. And so when we hear this idea of inherent well-being, um, which, is, which is presented to some extent, I would argue, in the scriptures as a, as a kind of promise, right? And with a lot of optimism. And so we can hear this and we can, we can connect with that optimism within ourself. And it can really uh, motivate and inspire. And it can just come as a, it can come as a relief. Great. <coughs> My mind is has the capacity for well-being i am inherently fundamentally sane Uh, and if we're particularly identified with suffering or if we're in a really difficult life stage or having difficulty integrating Uh, in making peace with what's happening in the world or if our practice is stunted or if it just feels like our practice is not developing or we're new to the practice and it feels like there's no success yet then we can hear this teaching and become discouraged or we can uh, add more self-judgment or uh, we just feel like we're not a very good practitioner so that's why I feel like uh, I need to be a little bit cautious with the and yet and yet um, these are the kind of teachings that I like talking about the most. Like I love to challenge us to utilize the Dharma and the meditation instructions to tap whatever our highest potential is. I do, with no apologies, see that as one of the goals. That's something that we can, we can do if, if we want to. 
So, we all know so well that the mind is obscured by so many different things. The hindrances, ill will, worry, laziness, referred to, uh, translated rather often as sloth and torpor. Um, sloth when the body is low on energy and sluggish, torpor when the mind is, is dull. Restlessness, worry, fear, doubt, doubt in ourselves, doubt in our capacity, doubt in our intelligence, doubt in our ability to learn something new, doubt in our ability to transform our suffering, doubt in the Buddha's teachings, doubt in the teacher teaching the Buddha's teachings, uh, doubt for me, as my practice developed, uh, has proven to be one of the most subtle and pervasive aspects of my own mind. I worked with it quite a bit on retreat just recently. I had many opportunities to come to terms with just how much doubt I have. And it's, I don't, if I'm not really paying attention, I, I, I'm ignorant to that part of myself, but it's, it's really in there. And, you know, and there are many other mind states that are uh, really difficult to be with uh, that aren't in this traditional category of the five hindrances jealousy and uh, depression um, anxiety uh, I mean the list goes on and on and on <coughs> so referred to collectively as kalashas these unwholesome mind states essentially cloud the mind. This is the kind of language that we, that we get in the teachings. The mind is clouded. And these kalashas cloud the mind and lead us to any variation of unwholesome mind states. Unwholesome mind states result in unwholesome actions. We're unskillful. Unwholesome is a tricky word because it's start, it, start, it can uh, it can start to get moralistic. Uh, so I use synonymously unwholesome, unskillful, and unhealthy. Right? So these unwholesome or unskillful or unhealthy actions result in solidifying the kalashas themselves. The craving, clinging, grasping, worry, greed, doubt, leading to more unskillful actions in this phenomena is what we call samsara. Okay, the continuous cycle of suffering that we easily find ourselves trapped in. So this meditation practice is about learning how to step off of that wheel of samsara. And, uh, and ultimately, I would, I would say, is about learning how to jump off the wheel permanently. Right? And if I follow that thread, uh, which this talk is not about, that would lead us to 
a conversation around awakening, liberation, nibbana, <coughs> nirvana, enlightenment. <coughs> So when we, when, we, when we touch or contact or feel or, em, or embrace um, this inherent well-being in our own mind, we glimpse one of the greatest potentials of being a human being. To experience our mind as calm, quiet, stable, tranquil, and to be, as a result, happy, joyful, appreciative, results in actions that are wise, kind, and generous, we begin to see ourselves, others in the world differently. So can you see how this is almost an inverse cycle of the samsara cycle and that I explained, the way that samsara is developed and I said something I alluded to that in the meditation practice I said you know this continuity of mindfulness we're trying to do is really hard because it's not what we're used to it's going against the stream of the distraction that's happening all the time in our daily life when we're not being mindful but the continuity that we develop through right effort becomes more natural. And the mind starts to move toward these more wholesome states and the hindrances get weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. And some of us might find that there's a turning point in the practice, whether it's next month or next year or in 10 years or in 15 years, where we just start to notice that the mind is naturally inclined toward wholesome activities in body, speech, and mind. And it's an interesting turning point because when it's, it starts to happen, the mind go, goes, whoa, was I just really skillful? <laughs> and, 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 and it'll be in reference to a habitual pattern of yours that you thought you would never break that caused you anxiety or where you, a particular reason that would, where you would lash out at somebody else and you didn't do it. And then, and then the next moment the mind will go, I didn't even try to do that. I didn't even try to be skillful. And that's when you know that there's momentum, that the practice has its own inertia and In, you know, in, in more in the language of neuroscience, you've actually probably start, started to rewire your brain. Your brain is working differently. And it's choosing to be in relationship to others and situations and to yourself in a way that's prone to greater well-being. It's, it's happening. And this inherent well-being is referred to in, in you know, there's a lot of different words in the, in the teachings, both in the Hinayana and Mahayana, in the Theravada, the Zen, and the Tibetan. I'll talk about it in different ways. The mind is luminous. The mind is radiant. The mind is tranquil. The mind is benevolent. Um, so 
So there's all these little clues. There's all these little clues in the in the teaching stories of the possibility of a remarkable quality of mind. So when this happens, we often find that we're less defended. This inherent well-being is not so caught up in the projects of self-making and attachment and clinging. There's less confusion about what is required to be happy and well. Why? Well, this inherent well-being is already closer to happiness, goodness, wellness. So there's less requirement. We see clearly, I don't actually have to do anything. That, so the reduction of clinging and grasping is in that awareness. So we're less offended. It's very natural. We trust ourselves more. We trust our own mind more. We're less affected by others' actions and more able to stand up for what is right, wholesome, beneficial. And we can give more of ourselves to others while simultaneously being less reliant on others for our own well-being. This idea that we are less affected by others' actions alludes to metta in Pali or loving kindness or or friendliness, which is what I was... uh, practicing on retreat. The whole retreat was a loving-kindness retreat. And metta shows us how kindness is a great protection. It's, in a sense, a kind of armor. Uh, I describe it as, like, uh, putting a really, uh, like, wrapping myself in a really cozy comfortable blanket and it's just like nice and nice and soft and it's the perfect temperature um, and yet it's um, it's like armored in some way and nobody can get me <laughs> I just tuck in and it's when the mind when the mind is 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 radiant with benevolence and friendliness um, there's no room for ill will and anger and frustration. So when others are attacking us or things aren't going the way we want, we're not so affected. The, the underlying sense of happiness that comes from the well-being that is present because of the absence of aversion and desire and grasping is protecting us. It's quite, re- quite remarkable. Understanding that the deepest peace we seek is available to us all the time and is to be found right here within our own mind disempowers the mechanism of greed, hatred, and delusion. It disempowers 
what in the Mahayana, in the in the Tibetan and Zen tradition, is referred to as the three poisons. And this shows up. The three poisons shows up in the yoga teachings also. The three, in, in the Theravada more generally, the three roots of unwholesome action. So the the volitional factors that perpetuate suffering and unskillful action are reduced. The what drives those forces of mind is weakened. Right? We're we're trying to be happy all the time, but we're doing so unskillfully as a result of ignorance or avidya in the Pali. And because we're unhappy, we're over-efforting in the wrong ways. That's all, that's all of the Dharma right there. That's the Dharma. So if we follow this out to its logical conclusion, it makes a lot of sense that the, when the mind starts to relax and get happy, that can stop, that can relax. That act, that underlying impulse that drives grasping and clinging can be put away, done with. And you might notice this, like in really ordinary ways in your own life, you know, in those moments when, when things, to be, things seem to be going well and you're happy and um, you have what you need and you're safe and uh, not at risk inwardly and outwardly and the mind settles doesn't it the mind really the mind really settles and then the mind usually goes I hope this lasts forever <laughs> so this this is the highest form of empowerment. This is the highest form of empowerment, I think, for a human being. Um, the most reliable source of freedom and the cause of the deepest contentment. Other people can't empower us. We talk about people getting empowered. I'm going to empower you. Empowerment comes from we can empower ourselves. And the most reliable source of freedom, because freedom doesn't come from outside ourselves. It really doesn't. In this social and political climate, we need to help each other, and we need to help those who are, have traditionally been othered. Uh, we need to help one another be more free. Uh, but in a deep psychological sense, we find freedom in our own mind and heart. The promise that the mind is inherently well implies that well-being is our true nature. Rather than suffering being our true nature, even though we often uh, feel some kind of discontent at the very least, And that well-being is available within us, even though we not, may not be 
experiencing it all the time in that well-being requires no special external conditions. The promise, so I'm just saying this again, the promise that the mind is inherently well implies that well-being is our true nature rather than suffering. And that well-being is available within us even though we may not be experiencing it all the time. And it implies that well-being requires no special external conditions. So this too can be heard uh, as a great relief. Oh, great. You mean I don't need more money, a better spouse, a new boyfriend, <laughs> a better job, better health. Actually, yeah, those all help. And again, this is a radical teaching. From one end of the spectrum, we could say, no, you don't actually. We can find that within ourselves. So then, this inherent well-being is a trait, is fundamentally what I'm arguing, right? In a sense, that's what this whole talk is about. Well-being is a trait. The definition of trait is a distinguishing quality or characteristic, typically one belonging to a person. So... A trait is a quality or characteristic within an organism, within a, within a, in this case, we're talking about ourselves, so within a human being, which may be present in any moment or not. Okay, so well-being is a trait, which is to say it's in here somewhere, but may or may not be present, meaning it may not be what we're experiencing it may not be what we're experiencing. Meditation practice is the practice of cultivating the mind so that latent traits, naturally existing qualities not yet fully developed, become active states. So there's a difference between a trait and a state. A state is the particular condition that someone is in at a particular time. So this bhavana in Pali, this cultivation, is to transform these, late, this, these latent states within ourselves, this latent well-being, into an active state. So that we're feeling well, we're, we're feeling happy, we're feeling contented, we're feeling joyful, we're feeling appreciative. And so therefore we're starting to act and live differently uh, as a result of that inner experience. There's a, a popular saying in Dharma circles, which I'm sure many of you have heard, uh, many of you have heard many, many times. Um, you can't do insight you can't do kindness, right? Like, in reference to the meditation practice specifically, you, you, you can't make insight happen. You can't make 
metta or friendliness or compassion happen. You can only create the conditions for them to rise. You can only create the conditions for them to rise. And that's why tonight I was, you know, gave some basic instructions, said, you know, watch the sloth and torpor and the laziness, watch the pushing too hard, and just try to develop a gentle, continuous mindfulness. That's the cultivation. And we just keep doing, we just keep learning how to do that. We just keep getting better at it over time. This this idea that we can't do insight or we can't do kindness, we can't make it happen is an important teaching because it, I think it points directly to the fact that insight and kindness are present in the mind already. They are both the DNA and the product of the inherent well-being of mind. So to phrase it this way is often really controversial. It's, it's just as valid, I think, to say that uh, confusion or ignorance um, is what we will find if we look closely at the mind. So I think it's a matter of semantics and or emphasis. But I really, I think it's probably, I think my view is actually probably less popular. But I really like to think, I really like to lean toward the idea that the mind-body organism of the human being uh, has this great latent potential for well-being. And we really need to get the cloudy muck of the hindrances Away, we need to sweep them out of the way. So, so if both statements are true, if it's true that <clears throat> this inherent well-being abides in the body, and you know, ignorance abides in the mind, and if both statements are true, how do we reconcile this? <clears throat> At the risk of oversimplifying, the mind suffers. Its inherent well-being obscured by a pervasive lack of understanding in resultant afflictive mind states. And when practice reveals the cause of those afflictive mind states, and we pull our energy away from actions in body, speech, and mind, which perpetuates them, what we discover is the mind's inherent well-being. The mind suffers. We know this. Its inherent well-being is obscured by a pervasive lack of understanding and resultant afflictive mind states, related afflictive mind states. And when practice reveals the cause of those afflictive mind states, And as we're honest about how much pain and dukkha and suffering that creates, we begin to pull our energy away from actions in body, speech, and mind, which perpetuate them. What we discover then is the mind's inherent well-being. So to cultivate bhavana, to cultivate 
To develop kindness, to develop wisdom through insight. To cultivate is to see clearly. To see clearly what is really happening in one's own mind. To see clearly is to be able to act differently. We cannot act in a way that moves toward wholesome mind states if we're not seeing clearly. To act differently is to allow for a different set of conditions to manifest. This is breaking our conditioning. This is what we're talking about. Creating new patterns. As we develop and refine our ability to do this, experientially it feels very much like we are connecting in with an inherent goodness in sanity that is universal, pervasive. And there is the sense that it has always been there and always will be, even though it's often covered up. To cultivate is to see clearly. To see clearly is to be able to act differently. To act differently is to allow for a different set of conditions to manifest. As we develop and refine our ability to do this, experientially it feels like we are connecting in with an inherent goodness and sanity that is universal, pervasive. And there is the sense that it has always been there and always will be, even though it's not always available, even though it's often covered up. I'll close with a short uh, passage from Rumi. Light again in the one who brings light. Change the way you live. Light again in the one who brings light. Change the way you live.